You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome Jane Michaels, a woman from rural Wisconsin who listens to Radio Free Humanity, grew up in a apolitical environment, and whose friends and family embraced Trump in 2016. She tells us a personal story about how Trumpism led to her estrangement from her family, how it poisoned her family dynamics. And she also talks about her lifelong quest to learn more about Marx, Marxism, and humanism. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. And if you find yourself appreciating the podcast, please do not forget to subscribe, to like, to comment and to write to us. We very much appreciate it. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. Pretty soon we'll be talking to Jane Michaels about Trumpism. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to talk about some current events. Hey, actually, before we get into our current events segment, we have a special announcement to make. We are fast approaching the 100th episode of Radio Free Humanity, and we are hoping to celebrate by having a call-in show where you can call in with questions and comments you have. The date is set to be September 10th at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Uh, Listen here in the podcast for future announcements or write to MHI to make sure you get notified. You can write to MHI at MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. We hope to see you there. We are recording this segment on July 27th, and we're going to be attempting to do two different topics in today's current event segment, something we've never done before. First, we're going to be following up on last episode's discussion about uh, U.S. elections and polling data and talking about some new polling data that's come out around the growth of the Democratic base among young voters. And two, we're going to be discussing this curious case of the recent resignation of the president of Stanford in response to charges of academic uh, fraud. Yeah, there was an investigation that found manipulation of research data, not by him personally, but by people in his labs. He was the principal author of these pieces. Well, let's start talking about the electoral stuff. In our last episode, we were critiquing the Trump's kryptonite piece put up by the Jacobin Mayu suggesting that the best strategy for Democrats to win elections and defeat Trumpism is to target swing voters with economic populism. We had a lot of critiques of that. People can go back and listen to the episode. But interestingly, just after that episode came out, there was a new report by Catalyst, which is a Democratic polling operation. And they claim that their data shows an emerging anti-MAGA coalition, that there's an increasing share of Democrats in the voting electorate. There are more Democrats now uh, voting than there were in the 2016 election. Uh, A lot of that is new young voters becoming eligible to vote, but also that the politics of Trumpism have turned an increasing amount of Americans against the Republican Party. What the um, results basically show is that new voters who've come in since 2016, but didn't vote in 2016, are 
more Democratic-leaning than those who voted in 2016. That's young voters. And this is nationwide. It's in 47 out of 50 states. And in some cases, the swing is very big, like in Kansas. Uh, it's particularly big. And that's where they first fought back against the taking away of abortion. We have a lot of problems with what Jacobin is saying. But even, you know, from the technical vantage point, if, if you want to give the Democratic Party strategic communications advice, you know, who you should pitch your message to and what kind of message it should be, this this is significant. This kind of thing, young people becoming more inclined to be Democrats. New stuff has come out even more recently the other day showing massively uh, more progressive views among young people. There was a report based on the Harvard Youth Poll, which showed that with respect to gun laws, climate change, same-sex relationships, basically welfare policy, food and shelter being deemed a right, young people have become massively more progressive in their orientation, really just since 2012 or 2016. The caveat that is in my mind all the time is, yes, but young people don't turn out to vote in as great a rate as older people. So, I mean, I have some questions as to this idea of, okay, well, all you got to do is turn out the vote and that'll solve everything. You don't have to appeal to swing voters. I'm not in the business of giving strategic advice to, to any of these people, right? But, you know, if it were as easy as that, they would have done it already. Most people who don't vote don't know much about politics, don't care, are alienated from it, don't know how to, to choose, don't care to choose, don't care to vote. You know, and then there are just like the structural problems. Young people, they got like kids, they got working two jobs, they, it, it's hard for them to vote. It's, it's not as easy as, as it is when you write it on paper, just turn out the vote. I actually don't know, but I would say irrespective of the, the strategizing, I think it's really significant that the younger voters are breaking from MAGA big way. I think it's also significant that their views uh, are much more progressive than in the past. This does not bode well for the Republicans, Trumpism, but it's it's dangerous because they read these same reports and they understand them and they're just going to say, well, we need more voter suppression because we can't win the other way. Yeah, and I totally understand your caveat about young voters' voting habits. And I also am not looking to give the Democratic Party advice on how to run campaigns. But in looking at Jacobin's piece, you know, advising that the best use of socialists is to advise Democrats to target swing voters with economic populism that's basically reduced to a job guarantee program versus this polling about young voters that identifies a potentially very progressive, maybe even radical segment of the country that socialists could be engaging with and developing ideas with, uh, it just strikes me as like a real sad reflection on where Jacobin has ended up that, that they once again are like looking in the wrong place to understand what's going on in American politics and where the struggle needs to be. Oh, for sure. I mean, this is all about accepting the framework of electoral politics as it is. You, you take people where they're at, you take the political map where it's at, and you try to eke out a victory by moving one or two percentage points uh, of the population into the D column in, in this election, and then, you know, the future be damned. Absolutely. Well, let's pivot to talking about the Stanford case, the case of this president of Stanford University resigning. Here's a story of 
truth winning over post-truth, of uh, accountability for falsehood, something we don't see a lot nowadays. Yeah, this is really good news. This is really exciting. Uh, yeah, we have so little good news, and this is just mm-hmm. really good news. Yeah. Stanford University President Mark Tessier-Levine resigned last week after big controversy erupted about his manipulation of research that he oversaw as a neuroscientist. And apparently, the person who originally raised the alarms about his research was Elizabeth Bick, the Dutch microbiologist that we've discussed before on the podcast a long time ago. Elizabeth Bick takes it upon herself to regularly review lots of scientific studies looking for evidence of manipulation of images in scientific studies. And she has some sort of strange genius for seeing visual patterns that other people can't see in images and she can tell when images have been flipped or altered in other ways to manipulate results in data but apparently the student paper at stanford started investigating her claims and the student this 18 year old freshman student theo baker wrote a bunch of stories and eventually, did he get like a... He won the Polk Award. A, he won the Polk Award Which last is one year. of the most prestigious uh, awards in journalism. Uh, he's an undergraduate, first-year student at Stanford University going after the president of the university. Now, he's not just any old undergraduate student. Both of his parents are very prominent journalists themselves. Peter Baker, the New York Times, and Stu- Susan Glasser, who may be uh, with Politico or, or Atlantic or something right now. Both very prominent. So although Tessie Levine's lawyers threatened the paper, him and Theo Baker and so forth, he was kind of protected by the facts of who he is. So um, you said this is uh, great news. So why is it great news, Andrew? Well, first of all, for an investigation of facts to bring down a a university president uh, is a very big deal in, in itself. And... Moreover, this is not your standard kind of issue of somebody committing plagiarism or fabricating data themselves. He, Tessé Levine, he headed these uh, projects. Uh, he was a, or he is, a Alzheimer's investigator. And people in his lab, some of them obviously did some really bad stuff, and he didn't oversee the lab properly. There's other things going on where he knew that corrections needed to be issued and they didn't get corrected. He just did a job that kind of covered this up or was lackadaisical about calling attention to bad research he oversaw. So it's kind of unprecedented that when somebody is not personally held to be responsible and and the investigation cleared him of personal responsibility for manipulation of images, fabrication, and such. I think it's unprecedented that somebody like this gets taken down. And I'm basing this in part on a recent stat article on the the case by Lisa Rasmussen, who's the editor-in-chief of accountability in, in research. And she writes... One might have expected Tessé Levine to be in the clear with uh, with report's conclusion that there's no evidence he committed misconduct or clearly knew about misconduct in his labs. Instead, he lost his job for behavior that has up until this point not typically been subject to consequences. So she's anticipating, hoping for, but thinking that there might be a real sea change coming in the way research 
gets conducted. Uh, and as she points out, the real problem here is structural. Look, people are going to do what they're going to do. People are going to try to gain whatever advantage they can. And the problem is that people get rewarded for producing good results, and they don't get rewarded for not finding good results in research again and again. And there is very clear evidence that this is the way Tessier Levine conducted his labs. You know, he bestowed attention on the, the postdoctoral students working under him who found good results and those who didn't, you know, well, he, he ignored them. Maybe not even in uh, an atypical way, maybe just in a normal way, but that's what happened. And, and the result was manipulated images, stuff he's got to retract or issue massive corrections to. So you think this might serve as enough of a warning to others that it might be the start of some kind of cultural change as to how people do research or how they incentivize research? Yeah, I mean, I'm basing this on what Lisa Rasmussen says. Uh, she knows much better than I do, particularly about, you know, medical-related fields. Yeah, and this is something Elizabeth Bick was talking about in that piece that we discussed a long time ago on the podcast. She's saying that people need to value negative results as much as they value positive results. And they also need to value reproducing results, like reproducing other people's research. And she's pointing out that in the age of AI images, it's you can't just rely on images to believe the, the results. They need to be something that other labs reproduce and confirm. Right, right. This is called the replication crisis. Yeah, and, and people, a lot of people have been talking about this, especially in psychology, for a decade now, if you like read philosophers of science like Karl Popper, Imri Lakatos, what becomes very striking is the way that scientific knowledge progresses is by knocking down hypotheses. People have ideas, hunches, you know, hypotheses, claims. Where the progress comes is by knocking down such claims, not by confirming them, because once you can exclude things, you can move on and you can say, okay, so it's not that, well, maybe it's this. And it's that kind of dialectic that moves things forward. And that is, in fact, extremely new, that idea of disconfirming things and procedures and, and, and protocols to, to knock things down. That's pretty new in the last several hundred years. You know, it's not that people way back when in Europe and other cultures, it's not, it's not that they didn't care about the truth. It's not that they weren't rational, but they lacked procedures to disconfirm what they believed. There was always some way in which whatever they believed withstood whatever would seem to be contrary evidence against it. Oh, well, the gods changed their mind, you know, <laughs> whatever it might be, right? You, you, you can always invent that kind of story. Knocking down those stories and knocking down hypotheses, getting false claims retracted, and we're, you know, fighting a case, as some of our listeners might know. These are extremely important things, not only in, a, in an ethical sense, but for the progress of knowledge. So it's not only that, like, I, I, I welcome the structural change for, 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 for ethical reasons, you know, prioritizing of, oh, let's get good results. Let's discover something. This really has to change because it's, it's, it's really harmful in the end. Well, we'll have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation with Jane Michaels. Hi, this is Andrew. We're recording on July 19, 2023. 
And today we have a very special guest, Jane Michaels. You'll learn about her personal story. This is about her life and the changes in her life. Jane is a woman who grew up in a small town in northern Wisconsin, and now she lives also in Wisconsin, but in uh, the southern part of the state. And she's one of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who have become estranged or on the outs with people in their past, family members and so forth because of Trumpism. And to me, I'm, I'm just so excited to, to have Jane on the podcast to speak with us, both because it's a story of personal courage to stand up to Trumpism when it's right there in your backyard and among the people you know and, and, and love. And also because it's it's not just the story of, of one person, it's the story of so many people in the United States. I'm interested in learning more. I'm interested in Jane being able to share with us. And hopefully there are people out there listening that might find some benefit to what we'll be talking about in terms of their own lives and life decisions. So welcome, Jane. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for being on the podcast, Jane. Jane, as I said, I don't know how you would characterize it, but I would say you're somewhat estranged from uh, some other people in your family because of Trumpism and related things like people's reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. From what I understand, it wasn't always like this. How would you describe your relations with your family before Trump came down that escalator in 2015? My family, which basically comprises my mom and my brother and sister, we are always really Really close. Lived with my mom a lot of the time when I was an older adult, just to, you know, because we were that close, spent a lot of time together. The kind of family that's just can tell each other anything, don't have weird family things where you have to hide things from mom or anything like that. Just like really open and honest and tight. Since we're going to be talking about politics, um, what was sort of the political environment that you grew up in, I guess the town or the community you were in and the, the politics of your family even, you know, were things kind of Trumpy prior to 2016? Um, no, absolutely not. When I remember when I was a kid in the 90s, I remember very clearly like the Bill Clinton thing happening, you know, with him and Monica Lewinsky. And I would just listen to the adults. And I remember him talking about Ross Perot. And nobody seemed really staunchly either way, but they just seemed kind of middle of the road. I, this, I think, is really interesting, too. They explained to me that, you know, the reason it was such a big deal with Bill Clinton, not even his politics, but his personal happenings was that he was the head of our country. So he was expected to have a better way of composing himself, of being a model to our society. And that's why it mattered. Not because he had an affair, which is pretty common, but because he was the person who was supposed to uphold and show like, this is how we conduct ourselves basically, right? And that that's why it was important that you can't conduct yourself like that as a leader. I don't remember the words like Democrat or Republican. And I do remember them talking about Ralph Nader and the Green Party. I do remember that, but it was never obviously either way. It was just kind of small town America. I, I do always remember hearing people talk about being angry that they had to pay other people's kids' school taxes, you know, like property taxes for other people's kids to go to school. But besides that, you know, there was still definitely racism around, but everybody tried to give the idea of being really just like middle of the road and accepting. We didn't have money. We weren't wealthy people. So I don't think like the conservative values really applied to us. 
So it was just kind of like, you know, politics are politics. It doesn't really have anything to do with human beings. It's just taxes and policies and stuff like that. They didn't really know a lot of the things that were going on. So it wasn't really spoken of. It was just the sensational things like Ralph Nader. He was definitely sensational. And the Bill Clinton stuff, that was sensational. So it was like those outer topics that were spoken about, not really the actual workings of politics. Getting older in life, I didn't really notice any of it being this way or that way. I don't think until I was about 18, when I turned 18, it was like the age of, you know, the Al Gore Bush election that I did live in Minneapolis. So, I mean, I was very much all of a sudden thrust into like this political world that I really had never experienced. But before that, in the town that I was from, there's no news there. There's not a news channel on TV that's anywhere closer than an hour and a half either way. So that news pretty much never really applied to us. So people didn't really watch it. And the newspaper was, you know, there's no daily newspaper. It's just a every weekend newspaper that pretty much comprised court stuff and classified garage sale things. And it wasn't political news. You've told us some about your, your, your family and kind of general apolitical environment you grew up in. But you were exposed to various kinds of ideologies when you were growing up, various kinds of racial attitudes. And when I spoke with you yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago, you, you indicated that your own thinking had changed, had evolved over the years. And so how? How did, how, how did your thinking change and, and why did it change? So where I'm from up there, it's right next to a Native American reservation. And that's a lot of the racism that I grew up looking at. Everybody was really anti-Native American. They would say things about them being like lazy or drunks or not wanting to come off the res for jobs. I definitely never felt like like uh, antagonistic towards them in any way, but I felt different and afraid definitely afraid. And the black families that lived on our streets, um, they were always, I wouldn't say welcomed into our neighborhood, but they were not treated. Well, actually, you know, I could be wrong on that. They could have been treated more harshly than I know. But when I would get home, you know, my mom would make comments about maybe the way that things smelled or the dad didn't work things where they would say on the outside, like, oh, we're not racist, but their comments and their, what do they call those microaggressions? would definitely be there. So that was confusing. And I did adopt that thinking, you know, and even, you know, nowadays, even though I completely don't agree and I don't think it's logical to be racist, I still have those, like, I guess it's called internal biases in my head that will come up and, you know, you have to acknowledge it and see that it's there. So that's when I was, I guess, like early middle school, that's when I started realizing that, you know, maybe the adults around me were not either aware of what they were saying or that they were just like straight wrong right so I learned to start distrusting and in the same vein as the Bill Clinton thing when they would say that it was so important that he be a upstanding citizen because he was the model and then also seeing the adults around me doing like the same kind of behavior and hearing about those same like infidelity issues with them it just kind of showed the contrast between what they would say and what they would do and it put doubts into my head about like that I needed to be more aware and I needed to be more paying attention. The racism thing, especially with the Native Americans, was it was really hard to deal with growing up because as a white kid who actually does have Native American in me, I would always be treated very badly by the Native American girls. You know, they always wanted to beat me up. And for a while that facilitated and me being like angry or hateful towards them. And, you know, you would use slurs, stay away from them. Yeah, but it, it grew increasingly 
ugly feeling to be like that. And even though I didn't appreciate the way they treated me, I also kind of understood it and couldn't blame them for it. You know, I couldn't blame them for it because they are oppressed and they are kept out there. And when they do come and get jobs in town, they are treated like crap. And people would say, oh, they don't want to work. But then you'd always see them walking 10 miles to town to go to work at McDonald's. And there was no real effort to reach out to anybody, you know, or make people feel welcome. You've talked a lot about the the racial attitudes that you confronted when you were growing up and your own thinking about that, but also like political ideology in general. It was mostly an apolitical environment, but you were exposed to to various kinds of political ideology, right? Yes. Uh, Can you tell us about that and how your own thinking changed over time? I remember my mom always saying, you know, that because I would ask, what are we, you know, if we were a political party? And she'd say Democrats. But she also wouldn't be able to tell me exactly what that meant, right? And she'd also tell me that she's never voted in her life and that she doesn't know anything about that, so she stays out. And then when I was 18 and I lived in Minneapolis, I was definitely living with Democratic um, roommates. And they, you know, basically told me what they knew. And I learned about it through canvassing and the election and the election where Gore quote-unquote lost that was where i got my actual first education of actual like ideologies of politics rather than just like locker room talk or whatever you want to call it i had basically felt that way up until that time that i was democratic and that mostly i knew about it just being more about people and i guess that's really probably almost only thing i really knew about it and then in college i had the business administration degree and i was in a financial math class and we were discussing how money is made and how banks are managed and how banks are you know how they're policed or rather not policed and at that time i was feeling well they should be able to regulate themselves they should be trusted and who's to tell them that they have to put these rules on there you know and that's when my teacher had told me that actually what i was saying was more republican it kind of just changed my ideas and for a while i was like yeah you know i do see this and i was working to be in wealth management and i was working on like learning how to stock market even if i couldn't be a rich person i was going to help other rich people manage their money so i leaned that way for a while even though my life didn't show those things i think maybe i just wanted to be a part of that world you know it sounds good right have all this money be a capitalist and win basically over everybody else if you get trampled on so be it i guess because you're just not paying attention i was in my early 20s i'm not really sure how that felt good at the time but it didn't i basically eventually stepped away from that when you know my life took a different turn my life is not does not mirror that thing so i couldn't really agree or espouse something that was not something that i couldn't that i could even show in my own life When 2016 rolled around, where were you politically? Well, I had voted for Obama. I was, you know, all about social issues and leaned very heavily Democratic. And I thought in my entire heart, I thought that my mom was right there with me, right? Because she's the one that raised me to feel these ways and to feel like that people are people and you don't judge based on, you know, sexual orientation, you know, race or anything like that. Even though, like I said before, there was still the microaggressions you always see. And then the Trump thing happened. And I remember my mom always, you know, he'd be in television shows, you know, he'd be on the You're Fired show and he'd make little guest appearances on things. And I remember her always saying that she could not stand him. And when that started happening, he started showing up and she would almost agree with me, you know, like this, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. But we also didn't get to talk about that much because at that same time, she had moved down south to be with my father, who she had not been with since I was a small child. 
And my father is most definitely Republican and against things like gay rights and against people getting welfare. And I think that had the biggest part to do with it is his influence because whereas she would not have said that before then she became just like staunchly all about him all about trump yes so you were surprised it didn't seem like in her your character yeah i was very surprised it did not seem like her character at all when i would start bringing more and more things up things that i thought would be deal breakers like i have said before to andrew like criticizing john mccain like my mom is she wasn't super about the military but it's kind of like christianity in america where everybody just kind of blindly is like yeah that's what we do you know so even if somebody might not actually have ever even thought about the military they're still like well that's what we do we we support it above all else and we don't want anybody else to hear us that we don't so you know i would say things like the different little things because you know when trump first came around the things he did and said were shocking let me just clue in people who don't remember or might have been too young at the time or not in the u.s this was uh, i think 2016 and john mccain who had you know run for for president on the republican ticket was thought of as you know some great guy well he had been a prisoner of war during the vietnam war people just paid lip service to how great he was all except trump and trump said i like people who don't get captured and that was thought to be like oh that that's going to sink his campaign that was Mm -hmm. like before the access hollywood tape everybody's oh this time he's gone too far this time he's gone too far well one of the first times that trump went too far was saying that he likes people who don't get captured so that's what this has to do with the military that Jane's talking about. I think you guys know as well as I do that if somebody had said that before, like you said, that would have been the end of them. And then the Access Hollywood tape, you know, my mom has always been very, maybe not in her mind, feminist, but at the same time, she's like, don't take no shit. She's always very encouraging me to like not bow down to male chauvinism or privilege. And when that happened, that was another thing that was like, oh, well, here we go. Here's like the proof that he said this terrible thing. I mean, obviously it's a terrible thing that happens all the time, but we can't obviously support him outwardly because what was I taught about Bill Clinton? Like, you can't do that. It was so shocking. I just can't even believe it. I don't even know how they could have said to justify it but they just kind of you know would use language to brush it off and my mom is very heavily christian i would you know talk about that and she's like well you know everybody says it he just got caught so you can't blame him for being caught so basically it's acceptable and then you know that whole attitude started coming about how like not a politician he says what he means and people appreciate that because then they know he's not a bullshitter because he just he says it like it is and that makes him more credible and he says it like it is so that makes him more respectable because he's not the stuffy politician that is proper just to please everybody he doesn't give a shit basically and what are you going to do about it i kind of started shying away from even talking about it and moving away from my hometown and then my mom being away from that hometown like we didn't talk for a while my sister who i'm very close with she would always agree with me in a sense that if we were texting she would she wouldn't say like oh yeah and say something to back it up she would just be like mm-hmm yeah I know. And I never really thought anything of it. And then my friend was saying to me, she said, you know, your sister is a Trump supporter. I was like, that's insane. That's crazy. And then I said something to her one day about the fact that my aunt Linda and my mom believe that Trump is the savior and the second coming of Christ. And she just said, yeah, back on the text. And I realized that my friend was true. And my sister just basically didn't want to create a line between us, which I respect. And I never mentioned it again after that because I just couldn't put that between my sister and I. I know that even just like the rest of my hometown, all of them, 
I don't talk to hardly almost any of them anymore because if I put something out on Facebook, it was either like, you know, some stupid comment about how, oh, this is stupid. I don't get into politics or, you know, when they give you an argument that's like, they think it's saying something, but it's not saying anything or defending something with a false fact. I became very closed off and I knew that I was basically unsafe to talk to anybody. Sadly enough, I mean, except for I had one friend who we could actually, you know, share things back and forth about his policies or, you know, memes of trashing on him. Whereas, you know, the other people, if you said something bad about Trump, they would jump on you like and say that, how can you say that about him? Or he's actually really great or I support him. But then they would then themselves would post things about how Nancy Pelosi is a drunk, terrible things like that, you know, and my mother would post those, which is very concerning, attacking a woman's character like that. I just found incredibly repulsive. So, I mean, it wasn't even just my family. It was my friends from high school. It was my family in the South. So, I mean, the world got really small and I didn't feel safe to say anything. I mean, and what would be the point anyway? You know, what would be the point of putting that stuff out there? If ignorance is just going to come back at you. When you began to say, look, I can't talk to these people. It seems like it was a lot of people. I would say on my Facebook from my class, I would say, you know, not like super close, but like good enough relationships to where you, you know, would like each other's posts or comment on their stuff. I would say a good 20, 30 people. I didn't have a huge class up north, but the people that I went to school with and grades above and below, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of the people that are still in the same area, they still don't have real news. They still don't have newspapers. And even frankly, even if they did have the newspapers or real news, they might not even watch it, you know, just kind of like getting their information from Facebook or talking to people or sitting around in the bar. Almost everybody, I it was, I mean, it still is flabbergasting to me that almost everybody held these views that he was okay, that he wasn't doing anything that bad, that he was just basically saying what everybody had wanted to say this whole time. And, and a lot of my friends too, I mean, I mean, for lack of a better term, like we were the bad kids. You know, I had friends that were in and out of jail and friends that, you know, smoked weed and didn't have amazing lives. Definitely were not wealthy. Definitely were not in a position to tell somebody else that they were above them. They're not religious people. So, I mean, I think that's what really even made it even more strange to me. And that still is, to me, the most strange thing is where a lot of the people that support Trump, he would not support them. Like, he's not about them. Why do they think that? He's not about little low-income America criminals, you know, that he would call them. So why do they think that he supports them? Incredibly confusing. Do you, do you have any feel for why they think that? I mean, you must have thought about it a lot, and you're not the only one by any stretch of the imagination. This is like the big question in the United States and really in a lot of the world is this right-wing so-called populism, people who are supporting it, they're going against their own economic interests. Do you think that they're aware of that on some level or just totally unaware or in denial or what? I mean, obviously a combination of things, but I think one major part is for one, lack of information. When I lived up north and I didn't have a lot of information or access to it, like I kind of thought that the world was a lot smaller than it was. I thought that say something like a revolution happened. Like I didn't think anything like that would ever be possible. It was just like you had the Democrats, you had the Republicans. It was boring. Politics had nothing to do with real life. You know, there was no changing it. It's a politician's game. It's not us regular people's business. A lot of people don't seem to want to reach out for more information, whether that's for lack of knowing how to or desire or 
I think there was just a lot of taking things for face value, uh, taking it for granted. And then when everybody around you kind of is just like, and then the phenomenon of people believing what they see on the internet for no reason. Oh, I saw a meme that said, so-and-so politician said this and that and this. And it just like, it, it just is right. And then my mom said it too, or my dad said it. So I know it is. And then sharing it. So-and-so's dad shared this. So, I mean, he must know the Trump team and all them, they play on that so much, right? Like that people don't want to be the one that's like, no, it's not kind of like, like Christianity, for example, again, like people just go with it because that's what everybody else is doing. If you're the one person that stands up in church and is like, you know, this sounds like bullshit. I mean, you're not going to get very far. People are going to either shame you, they're going to kick you out, or they're just going to make you feel stupid. People just want to go with the flow. They don't want to be kicked out of the group. They don't want to look stupid for lack of trying to learn more. They got better things to do. Honestly, if you're not paying attention to politics closely, the things that actually happen, they do sound crazy. All kinds of things that if you just told someone on the street like that doesn't pay attention, be like, hey, did you know, say... Like when first Trump first came became president and he started like changing the rules and the laws like at lightning speed and people just didn't believe it because they didn't think that that was even possible. They just put it out of their minds. They didn't even try to think farther. That's like they're just like that's dumb. That's that's not happening. When in fact it is, and that's another thing that's preyed upon. Like you know that people are just not paying attention. Like someone like my mom who doesn't really have. An identity of her own. She doesn't have a lot of friends and she just kind of wants to be part of something and she wants to be seen. I think a lot of people are in that position where they're like, you know, we can say that we agree with this and we can be like fired up with everybody and we're part of something, right? And if even more people are out there, then it must be real, right? We stand for something, we're against something and we the people. And if all of us are saying it, it must be true. It's like a contagion, you know, it's like a fever. And whether they believe it or not, they want to be part of it. And whether they believe it or not, they don't know how to find out anyway. So instead of being cast from the group, they go with it. And then I don't know whether they actually convince themselves or if they put it out of their mind. I mean, probably both. But if you speak up and you're that person, you're the killjoy, you know, and who wants to be the killjoy? I mean, I do, but not a lot of other people do. Um, I think in the same vein, it also gave people permission to bring out their inner misogyny and their inner racism. He gives us permission to be ourselves. He gives us permission to not be so PC anymore, you know, because people got so tired of being PC. I definitely see that as a thing. I think that might be one of the reasons that people think that he's for them because they see him as being an ally because he's like that. Because like there's only the two the two sides, right? There's like the politician in a, that speaks PC talk, but, you know, really just like takes your mind, does their own special interest stuff. But then there's him who takes over and is just like, look, all you politicians, I'm going to tell you how it is that he wouldn't have other objectives that weren't theirs. I think they just saw that one part and they didn't think any farther than that. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest and my, I have a very clear memory of the, the moment I felt like I really understood the, the Trump base. It was during the Trump's primary campaign in 2016. Enough people remember, but you know, he is one of his opponents. Opponents was Ted Cruz, the Texas uh, Republican congressman, and Trump was running this crazy propaganda campaign against Ted Cruz. He was calling him Lion Ted, and he was making up just crazy, just making up crazy stories about Ted Cruz that weren't true about it. His father was involved in Kennedy's assassination. Yeah, and something about his wife too, maybe. And I don't know, all of this crazy shit that just completely fabricated. And there was this viral video that went around the internet when Ted Cruz was going through Indiana, which is where I grew up, rural Indiana somewhere. And he was 
on the campaign trail and he was outside. He was trying to do his populist thing, talk to a bunch of people on the street and expecting they were all going to love him. Instead, this whole crowd was like around him and they were all just like taunting him with these juvenile juvenile attacks calling him like lion ted and politician yeah and just throwing all this you're a politician you're a politician i remember yeah yeah just throwing all this ridiculous crap at him that the same stuff trump had been saying and i had this moment i viscerally like i could feel it in my nerve my nervous system i was like holy shit i even before i knew where the clip was happening i was like oh my god i totally this is like the schoolyard when I was a kid in Indiana, this was like a bunch of bullies and they're just delighting in the fact that they can like swim around like a bunch of piranhas and just devour somebody. And they don't believe what Trump is saying. They just are foaming at the mouth with with the possibility to like publicly humiliate somebody and team up on people and just be nasty for the sake of being nasty. And I then I like, you know, looked down and read the video and was like, oh shit, they're like from my home state. And like of course these are probably like the kindred spirits to people I like grew up with all the time. And I, I like identified that and I was like, holy shit, this is what he's appealing to in these communities. There's some kind of culture of like just this really strong desire to be like horrible mean people and be like authoritarian and nasty and bullies and there are people that love that and want to like jump on that wagon and do more of that it's like they they just eat that shit up that was the first time i think trumpism made sense to me uh, because before that i was just like what how is he still winning this is ridiculous how is he doing so well in these primaries then i saw that and i was like oh right i remember i forgot I, i i forgot about those people i grew up with they fucking love this stuff yeah I, I fully agree. Like I said before, I like gave them permission to like let their inner visceral need to, like you said, be a bully. It just like gave them permission, not only just permission, but encouragement to be like that. Made them feel powerful. Maybe it's possible that the politicians who are these educated people who aren't allowed to say bad things about each other because that's just not how we conduct ourselves. It took back like that bully in them. It took You can be yourself and be openly racist and misogynistic and we'll do it together out loud. And that contagion, that group mentality, that mob mentality, it was like intoxicating to them. Yeah, it feels good if you're on the in crowd and everybody else, and there's so many of us in this country we we got to fight to just defend ourselves and protect our rights to the extent that they haven't already been taken away this attempt to like divide people again and again and again pit them against each other this is the core of it and it it, it, it's hard you know because of what you guys are saying so many people like it it gives them a thrill uh, makes them feel part of things. I, I, I don't think the, the human race can continue if we keep doing this because we're so interconnected now. So you've been on the outs, Jane, with members of your family, a lot of friends and stuff from your past. But in recent years and months and weeks and even yesterday, Trump uh, you know, was told he's a target in another uh, investigation. The reality of what Trumpism is is becoming, I think, clearer to anybody who cares to look at the situation in the face. Has the situation, however, with your former friends and family, has that improved any? Do you think that any of these people are ever going to come to grips with the reality of what Trumpism actually is? Maybe if not now, maybe in the future. It's definitely the case that the people who held on for a certain amount of time, every time something happens, they double down more. If you have supported him this long and then you're like, 
if you admit just one little thing like he might have done wrong, right, that kind of allows you to put a crack in the ice and the whole thing will fall apart. So I think a lot of people are too scared to turn around and say, I was wrong. There's very few people that will turn around and be like, whoa, I was wrong. You have the very opposite with the politicians during the initial election in 2016, Lindsey Graham and, and all those guys out there who were just like, we cannot do this. We're not electing this crazy person. He's terrible, blah, blah, blah. And look at him now. Lindsey Graham allows himself to be ridiculed in public just to stand next to Donald Trump. They all flip-flopped. Some people will see that and being like, they were wrong and now they see that Trump is right. And that's why they're like that rather than the fact that they're just political cowards. I mean, do you guys know a lot of people that changed their mind that were supported him and now they're like, you know what, you're right, he is a piece of shit. I don't see that. I feel like some people have this wall built up and no matter what, like it's not coming down and they don't want to leave their group. You know, each time a new indictment comes out, each time a new court case comes out, while we on this side might be like, finally, like vindication, like finally, God, I've been waiting for this forever. How could it have taken so long? Other people are like, well, they're just attacking him more. They're just attacking him more. And see, it's just like this campaign against him because he couldn't possibly have done all these things, which I mean, obviously he very much did. And we've been saying that from the beginning. But to those people, it just seems more unlikely that it's true. Right? They're like, oh, he couldn't have done all those things. How would that have been possible? We were watching him. And rather than showing them the light, it's just making him double down more. It's like a sickness in the head because it's obviously not based in reality. It's not based in fact. I used to take care of older people in their homes and it was such a hallmark of an older man to have CNN on all day long. You know, oh man, so boring. He's got that CNN on all day long, just wants to listen to the politics and the boring news stuff. And it was like the trusted news source. And then all of a sudden during COVID, it was like, I remember that was another like a John McCain moment I had where I was like, look, even CNN is giving like these facts and people were like, CNN, that's the fakest news network there is. And I was like, what? You just... It doesn't matter what I say. You're just going to be like, that's ridiculous because you just don't want to believe that you could be wrong. I mean, obviously, none of it is real. And if something is already based in fantasy and just like glazing over of one's eyes, how do you come back from that unless you have some huge cataclysmic thing happen in your face? And if it's not losing your family, if it's not losing all your money to like a, you know, when Trump did that donation thing, you know, that people didn't realize that they were signing up for a weekly donation and he drained their accounts. If it's not that, if it's not that, what's going to do it? They're not going to come to it on their own accord. I agree with you. I just thought that maybe, you know, people who are different, I, I agree with you. Cataclysmic events will, will tend to persuade people. You, you didn't find many open Nazis and fascists in the immediate aftermath of World War II in Italy and, and Germany. Well, Germany some, somewhat more, but those people were rather cowed because of their, their massive failure. Trump might be going down and that might change things, but I, I think you're right. I mean, when, when people are acclimated to glorifying belief that's not backed by evidence, that's just faith, and they think that that's a, an honorable attitude to believe things on the basis of faith, where, yeah. whether it's religious faith or faith in Trump, he's our savior, or whatever the hell it is, it's just so corrosive. And because of that, because you're not checking your, your beliefs against anything, you can maintain that indefinitely, it seems to me. And you become more honorable the more you hold to it in the face of all kinds of evidence. It's a formula for here's how to be wrong and to be more and more wrong and to paint yourself into a corner. It reminds me of just how cults operate. They often introduce 
the initiates to slowly to crazier and crazier ideas. And at some point you're so invested in the cult that the idea of like questioning the crazier idea is too dangerous to consider because you're so invested in what you've already given up of your reason and your dignity in order to be part of this community. And then there's a certain power and control over people and the fact that you can make them believe something that's preposterous and that they will continue to say it regardless of how preposterous the belief system increasingly becomes. That's real control and power. And that's the way the tankies operate as well. Yeah, yeah. It's the way a lot of groups on the so-called left operate. Yeah. It's like in Scientology, once you finally, after years and all this money, you find out about Xenu and the aliens, you're so invested, you're not going to say, oh, that's crazy, I quit Scientology. You're like, you're too committed by that point. And so now they totally have you because they can just tell you the most ridiculous thing they can come up with and you have to believe it. And then you're like, you're gone. Exactly like that. Exactly. We've been talking about a lot of politics, but we've also been talking about family. And, you know, some people might say, well, Trumpism, anti-Trumpism, that's just about politics, but blood is thicker than water. And your bond with your family is stronger than other bonds, so you shouldn't let politics get in the way of that. It looks like you've been letting politics get in the way of that. Uh, so how do you feel about that, that, that kind of statement and that kind of sentiment that, you know, blood is thicker than water? To me, politics, when people say they're not supposed to be in your, in your life, of course they are. Politics are personal. Politics are your humanity. You know, policies are people. People are policies. They affect all of us. And if I truly feel that you are against people, which I feel very strongly for, then I have a really hard time seeing you in the same way and being able to be around you. Because if you feel that way about other people, I'm not really sure how you're feeling about me or my children or my ideas. I definitely know that my family thinks differently about me and much the same that I do about them. In the case of my sister, her and I don't speak about it. We leave it away. So we're able to, you know, still come together as people and family and talk about the other things going on in life. Whereas my mother, if I'm in the same room with her, even if we had just gotten a disagreement about Trump, or even if it was like two months ago, I'll say, Ma, we just have to like not talk about it. We disagree on it. Okay, that's fine. I want to be here with you. So let's not talk about it. She'll give it, I don't know, maybe a few minutes and then she'll start talking about it again. I can't agree with her, you know, uh, so I have to, you know, fight back. And in that sense, she's not allowing me to keep that family bond. And then or in the sense of like Facebook, I'm friends with my sister on Facebook, but I'm not friends with my mom on Facebook. And my brother, that really makes him mad because he's like, you know, you're judging mom on her politics. But if I follow her on Facebook, I see the terrible, terrible things that she shares on there about people. If I see those things, I'm going to feel worse and worse about her every time I open Facebook. And I want to maintain my feelings of blood with her. So I have to like cut that out. So, I mean, there's a certain level of, you know, we can cut that stuff out and maintain homeostasis, but I'm still always going to have that in the back of my mind that I know where you stand. I don't agree with it. So if it comes down to it, just because we're blood, I mean, it's not enough. It's not enough for me to trust you as a human being and want to have you in my life. How does it make you feel though? Terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angie Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. 
Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So Jane, apparently you've been on a mission for a long time to learn more about Marx, humanism, uh, but it's been difficult for you to find the right information and to know if it's information you can trust. So we thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about that experience for you. Well, I remember the first time I ever heard the name Karl Marx. It was in middle school. We were learning something in history about Stalin and communism. And, you know, they kind of glazed over it. Didn't really kind of make sense. You know, and then I remember trying to find information about it so I could figure it out myself because they didn't give us very much information. And it was all very confusing. Being a kid, like sixth, seventh grade, there was no way for me at that time to find good information about it. Rather than just agree with communism, Stalin, bad, I just kind of put a pin in it, kept it in the back of my mind of wanting to learn more about it in american pop culture you know you always got the references in tv and movies about yakami it always just really struck me as confusing and to be honest the kind of characters that they would always pose saying that always seemed kind of 
extremist in a way where, you know, it's that whole concept of like, you think that you see behind the veil, but really you're the one with the veil on your eyes. That's kind of like the Trump thing too, I think. Going through life, like I said before, there wasn't a lot of politics. There wasn't a lot of any other, it never came up in my life anywhere ever again for a long time. Periodically, I would see something about Marx and you'd hear Marxism. And every time I do a Google search, you know, you come up with all this videos and information that all just really says, I mean, honestly, they all just say it's bad, but they can't give a reason why, you know, and you hear like DeSantis and, and Marxism and Marxism and Marxism. I feel like they're just trigger words. Like I'm not even comfortable saying anything about Marxism anywhere in my social life on Facebook. Like I would not say that because I feel like the drama and the idea around it is so loaded. Nobody even knows what it means. They just know that it's bad, right? And that it's terrible. And if you like it, then you're terrible. And you're a commie, even though nobody knows what a commie is. So in the last like year or so, I think I was at a thrift store and I came across the little communist manifesto book and I grabbed it. Then that got me thinking, I'm always just trying to figure out like the next thing that I can hyper-focus on. And I started putting in the the search bar Marxism to see what it would come up with. And a lot of different things come up. So then I would be Googling and trying to watch some of the videos. And like I said, a lot of things come up that are like, they're obviously funky, you know? And I mean, you could go through pages and pages of this, what I know now as actual disinformation, actual trying to distract you and trying to misinform you about what Marxism is because it's, it's not it. I mean, you really got to sift through so much stuff and you really have to look at it with an eye of skepticism, I came across your podcast. That's how I found it. It was, to me, it became like the most trusted voice that I had heard of a lot of the different ones. And now I'm learning that all the different things, like whether it's like a theory that say Lenin had in 1902, how he said one thing, and then his theory changed later. So you don't know if somebody's piggybacking off of something he said before and using it to prove their propaganda, or if it's something that they just don't know, or, and it's such a landscape of confusing mess. It's still very confusing. And I'm not a, I'm not a college educated, like critical theory person, but I'm trying to, and you just have to sift through a lot of stuff. The thing that I found most interesting also when I was trying to find information about it is the library. I'm a member of the interlibrary system where you can order books from anywhere in the, the state. And, and frankly, if you want to order books from out of the state, you can get them as well. And when I tried to find books about Marxism, I mean, the, the search results for Marxism being such a big topic, the search results were maybe a page and it was not anything that was positive. There was no positive things. The Communist Manifesto, even Marxist Capitalist, those books were not even at the library. If I cannot find something at the library, that tells me that there's a reason for that. If the library itself, like the government, because the government controls the library, and if the government doesn't want me to see those books, there's a reason for that. It's not like Marxism is bad, so we don't want to teach you about it. It's like, no, Marxism must be good, so we don't want you to learn about it. We don't want people to be thinking more critically. We don't want to give people ideas. We don't want to open their eyes to that the fact that all this is so bad. And it's another one of those things just like, you don't want to jump off the Trump train or you don't want to stand up in church and say this is bullshit. Like you don't want to be the person that goes out there and is like, actually, Marxism has points because people are like, what? Because the propaganda has been so violently pushed into our culture. If I'm worried to say something out in public, I have it coming at me from all ends. It shows to me that that I'm onto something. There's merit to it and that I want to learn more and that I was right to put a pin in it and that I was right to want to learn more. Wow. 
Let me just say something, because I think some people are going to discount what you said. When you said that the government doesn't want you to know, you're, you're talking about the Wisconsin state government and the library system that they run, correct? Yeah, the library is funded by the government, yes. It's local, it might be state. I mean, you, right. you actually live now not very far from a very major research university, University of Wisconsin, Madison. I'm sure you could find tons of stuff about Marxism in, in their library, but you don't have access to that because you're not a professor, you're not a student there, uh, exactly. and so forth. I would just like people to recall what Jane was saying earlier about the lack of newspapers uh, in the local area where she grew up. So anybody who's inclined to just discount this uh, about the lack of information about Marx and Marxism, I would just say, folks, please be aware that not everybody is, is in the same situation that you are. And even what they are going to get in a, in a Facebook search might, might not be the, the same kind of thing or, or even Google. I, I think we have to take this for, for what it is. You, you have looked for a long time, for decades, and you found some information, a lot of disinformation, and you've had mm -hmm. a lot of trouble sifting through all the misinformation and disinformation. Yes. So, Jane, you've been writing recently to Marxist Humanist Initiative. Uh, you listen to our podcast, but we, we know about this because you contacted the organization. You've written to MHI that our website and our meetings provide what you called answers to questions that I didn't even know that I had, which I found interesting. Can you give us an example or, or two? A lot of the things that were going on out there, I was not aware of until I saw your website, the literature, the essays and articles that are put out there and the current events type things. I didn't even know that those things were happening. Different protests and different, you know, I didn't know people were doing that out there. I didn't even know to think, to look into it. I didn't think that there was groups out there that were working towards a different type of society, working towards organization. And I didn't even know that all the materials, like the literature was out there, you know, cause like I said, I tried to find the information and I couldn't find it. Like if you don't know that something is a thing, sometimes you don't even know to ask. I didn't even know to ask, like if there was organizations out there, if there was groups that I could talk to, that there's people that I could talk to, that there's things happening in the world to learn about currently, rather than something that's so deep in the past, being able to be a member of the study group of the book, you know, because I didn't know the book existed of like, like Raya Dunayevskaya, I guess not specific answers to questions I didn't have, but just like a whole world that I did not know existed. That is frankly very exciting to like have found you guys. Your podcast said to like, you know, write, reach out. And I did it and I didn't expect to actually get an answer back. To get that back and to become like, you know, invited to the meetings and stuff like that is really just exciting. And I guess the answers are that there's an actual world out there that I didn't think it was possible like that my little brain when i was a kid that was just like there's just this basic little world republicans and democrats and nothing real big will ever happen it'll just be this status quo another thing that you wrote to uh, mhi is you said that you had deemed yourself a humanist on your own not even knowing that, that was a thing so what i'm interested in is okay how does it feel what's it like finding out that it is a thing humanism and it, that it was marxist thing refreshing 
hopeful, <laughs> inspiring, validating. And I'm not, I'm still not positive to be clear if this is exactly what you guys mean by humanism, but I feel like there's only kind of one kind of humanism you could kind of be. You know, I'm not a racist. I'm not a misogynist. I'm not any of these things. I, I'm for humans, just humans. Why can't we just be for humans? Like I'm a humanist. I just, I just want to be supportive of people. What other species out there works against itself? What else can we be for? It's been a pretty full conversation. I think it's been excellent. It's different than what we usually do, but I think it's really good that we did it. What, what's, what's in my head, but I don't have it worked out, is this letter that Marx wrote to his father when he, was, he had just gone off to college. And he was like, I don't want to be a lawyer like you want me to be. You know, I'm into philosophy, this and that. And, and Raya Dunyavskaya in mid-60s said to the youth, she says, this is what the youth should be reading. And it, 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 it just coming to me because it's, again, a matter of somebody who had real issues with his family. But I don't have anything worked out to say about it. But uh, we should keep that in mind. We might want to do something with that. And maybe we can have Jane come in on this. But j j just to say about, yes, among the things that we mean by humanism is, yes, we are for people. I mean, that that is without a doubt we're about. And we're for the complete self-development of human beings and tearing down all the barriers that right now are obstacles to our living decent lives, fulfilling lives, dignified lives. And there's a hell of a lot of that. And, you know, we're, yeah. we're in a position where, as you said, we might be threatening the very survival of our species and, and many others. So it's humanism. It's a, it's a very simple sentiment, but it involves so much of politics and so much of everything that affects our lives nowadays. Uh, that's the way I see it. Yeah, thanks so much for uh, finding the time to do this. It's It's been great. Yeah, thank you. I think it was very good. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 